There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Well, this morning, I am super excited to have another fellow Aussie and naturopath joining me on the show, Dan Sippel. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Yeah, well, just chatting um, off air before, like, you know, I can't even remember how, how we met, Dan. Maybe do, do you want to sort of mention how we even well, connect? Yeah, look, I was trying to think about it myself just before the podcast because I know it was a while ago. I think I was um, either just out of uni and you were still in, you know, your early years. But yeah, it was definitely through Facebook. We were in a little um, Facebook group of some sort, <laughs> which I'm, which is probably you know in the archives now. But um, but yeah, I think we just went back and forth for a long time, just um, yeah, with different ideas and and perspectives, and yeah, just built the relationship from there. But um, yeah, I'm excited, man. It's going to be fun delving into all different sorts of wild topics today. So let's, let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Maybe Dan, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about yourself and maybe um, a bit about your journey? Yeah. Well, I could probably do the whole podcast just on that, (laughs) but I'll give you, I'll give you the condensed version. Yeah. So my story into naturopathy is very alike a lot of other naturopaths in terms of um, like going from, I guess, illness to discovery and then on to eventually recovery. Yeah, so that all happened for me from about 17 years of age with Epstein-Barr and um, a really wicked case of glandular fever and strep throat that wiped me out of my HSC period. Prior to that, I'd been absolutely fine, was was very, you know, conventional and in, in just in terms of my upbringing and wasn't into health at all at that time. 
But um, yeah, illness kind of forced me down that avenue. And at that age in my life, like from 17 through to, I'm going to say maybe 22, 23, I was literally just like a walking pathogen. So you name it, everything, you know, I had parasites, viruses, the whole setup. And basically it was, yeah, just immune weakening and antibiotics and antidepressants and just getting bounced from doctor to doctor. Not sure what was wrong, but eventually went to a holistic doctor, took one look at me and ran a barrage of tests and worked out that I developed celiac disease on from all that microbiome punishment. So I think I had like, Oh man, I was calculating it a while back. I think it was about 30 cases or doses of, um, of antibiotics <laughs> before the age of like 21 or something like that. And like hardly any prior to being ill as well. So it was all in that short time, but, um, yeah, it was H pylori, strep, parasites, the whole thing. So I was real beat up for a while there, but I kind of worked out, okay, well, this is the end of the road with modern medicine. There's no more solutions here for me. I'm going to have to heal my body. And, you know, I went gluten-free and did all those things for the celiac disease, which was diagnosed by that time, but only got minimal improvement. And so, yeah, just went on that path, man, that journey of discovery and worked with different naturopaths and healers and integrative doctors and, you know, went to the books and just started really, you know, engaging in what it took to heal the body and then appreciate that. And then I realized how, how the system was so, yeah, we're just so misled by the, the modern medical system in many ways. Don't get me wrong, it has its places, but yeah, it wasn't helping me. So um, that kind of led me all through those years of mid-20s to late-20s. And then I think I embarked on the naturopathic degree by the age of maybe 24, 25, and still had my foot, you know, half in that world and then half in the going out and partying and drinking and carrying on world. And <laughs> thought I could manage both of them for a while, worked out that you can't. And um yeah. So yeah, by the age of, I think it was 30 that I graduated, moved down the South coast here set up practice from home. And yeah, it's been just full on since then, um, full-time practice set up at the, the home clinic here, two little kids. And um, yeah, here I am. That's the condensed version. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing journey. And also it's, it's one that you mentioned is quite similar with a lot of practitioners, right? They have their own yeah. struggles. They get through it and then they it's and then they want to heal other people going through that journey. So maybe with mm. um do you want to start with some of these stealth infections that you actually suffered from? Maybe do you want to start with Epstein Epstein Barr virus because you know that quite well? Maybe do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that and, and how that can linger for Yeah, some- yeah. Sure thing. So that's a virus that 90% of the population will have. Not everyone goes down hard and heavy with it. So this is what I always say to my patients. I'm like don't so much pay attention to the pathogen as much as you want to. And as much as you'll get pulled down those rabbit holes of treatments for that particular pathogen, you got to come back to the terrain, your host, because these pathogens only take the piss when the terrain is weakened and and damaged. Yeah. And when the pH is off and the minerals are imbalanced and the mitochondria are stuffed, that's when the pathogens wake up. And it's, it's that whole thing of where there's smoke, there's fire. So when there's one, there's always other ones underneath. And I think we get into these sort of mindsets that we need to, you know, Epstein-Barr started everything for me. So that's the one that I need to continually just hammer away at. And that even gets taught, as you will know, in, in naturopathic school too, like the whole, we're never well since this point. Okay, well, cool. What pathogen was it? Oh, it was EBV. Right. Well, that's what we need to do still 10 years later. I think that a little bit, you know, that has some, that has some premise, but 
for me and for a lot of pathogens, what are uh, pathogens, patients, I should say, <laughs> um, just had a coffee, can't you tell? And, and uh, yeah, for me and a lot of, a lot of patients, it's a case of, you know, well, if there's that causing immune suppression, is there also fungus? Is there also, you know, proteobacteria and gram negative bacteria? Is there parasites as well? Because like I said earlier, what we tend to find is when there's immune suppression, they all tend to kind of wake up and it's a bit of a domino. So working that out took a long time for me because I did hammer away at Epstein-Barr virus for a long time. And I think I got to a point where I worked out, well, I've pretty much exhausted all the avenues there and I'm not where I want to be. And so I have to come back to terrain and working on, you know, the obvious things, you know, foundational naturopathic stuff like gut health and sleep and hormones and all that type of stuff too. But um, strep was a big one for me that sort of resided for a long time in that sort of nasopharyngeal oral area. And, you know, got onto that with a whole different, you know, range of therapies. And um, what I kind of like to, to do it in the order of is kind of like start with viruses and bacteria, then do the fungal stuff and then do parasites last. And that's where my research is really heading at the moment. I'm, I'm kind of deep in that, that realm of, of parasites and haven't been for a long time. But, yeah, just a lot of cases in clinic have, um, have really made me appreciate how, how crucially under, undervalued they are. And um, we, we were pumped full of that at uni, like don't get into the parasites, don't, you know, that, that whole Holder-Clark thing. Um, yeah, but like I said, you know, 10 years on, I'm really sort of appreciating in a lot of patients. You've got to do that work to really lift the layer, that last layer off a lot of cases. And that was the case for me too. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. interesting with um, parasites. The, the one thing that I always just am reminded of is um, like full moon and the, how that affects the parasites. That is like it affects all these symptoms. So yeah, when it comes to parasites, Dan, maybe did you want to, do you want to discuss maybe some of the symptoms that people might experience and then also how you go about actually attacking that? Mm, it's a great question. And this is the thing, because for a long time, I really only looked at it as a digestive and gastrointestinal related thing. And I was, I was trained that way too. And it was kind of like, even if you detect parasites like Blastocystis hominis, for example, in a stool sample, don't necessarily, you know, think that that's the be all and end all of that patient's problems. You know, um, if they have, mind you, weight loss and, and bloody diarrhea and things like that, treat it. But parasites um, can infect any area. They can get into tissues and, and organs in, in all you know parts and places of the body. I came across some research recently because I've, I'm treating some patients with neurodegenerative conditions like MS. And um, I think it was McDonald, a researcher over in the States, demonstrated that there's worms and parasites in this patient population of his that he studied it was in like a hundred hundred percent of the cases they actually found in the cerebrospinal fluid when they tested it that it was full of parasitic organisms which was huge so i think that just demonstrates that they can infect and they do infect all different types of parts and organs of the of the body in some cases but then you do get the clean cut cases sometimes where it's like i went to bali i've never been well since I've had weight loss, bloating, diarrhea, all the things. And it's pretty clear at that point that you need to be doing some antiparasitic work. I've had a few cases though, even along those lines where those patients also have SIBO and Jason Horror like bangs on about this. And I think it's, it's good information too. Don't just assume that it's the one pathogen, you know, do your full workup, rule out all those other things as well. 
because um, often you'll find that there are other things lingering too that need to be treated. Mm, awesome stuff there. So I guess when it comes to, I know us, us as naturopaths, we love the gut and we love optimizing the microbiome and yeah. you know, nourishing the microbiome. I want to sort of link in some of the nutrients because that's something else that we love talking about. And that's like bioavailable nutrients and yep. optimal nutrients reference ranges. And let's sort of start with iron because I know we both know iron quite well. Yeah. So just share a little bit about iron that people should be aware of. Yeah, sure. Iron, there's a bit of a conundrum when it comes to iron. And this is really challenging for a lot of people to hear and definitely challenges how naturopaths are trained and integrative doctors. And um, the work of Morley Robbins, he's a researcher over in the States and he heads up the root cause protocol. He's a mentor of mine. He made me aware of this a long time ago, back when I was a student around 2014, 2015. I didn't pursue it at that time because I was still at uni. But in this last year, I've really circled back to working with him. He's just released a book called Cure Your Fatigue, which if anyone has had iron issues, if they've been told anemic, things of this nature, I'd definitely recommend getting a hold of. But when it comes to minerals, I think we've been a little bit misled as practitioners and iron toxicity and tissue caught iron, so iron backed up in the tissue is a real problem for a lot of people. And a lot of these folks have been told they're anemic because their blood levels are looking deficient, right? But in most, if not majority of these cases, it's jammed up in the tissue. And that happens, we think, because of a lack of bioavailable copper. And this doesn't get spoken enough, but I predict that in the next you know, two, three, four, five years, this is really, really going to come to the forefront about just how misled we've been. So we've got a whole heap of people taking iron supplements that, have, that are probably iron toxic, but deficient in their in their blood stores yeah when the body is like that it's an inflammatory furnace there's just oxidative stress you know to the hilt and um these people you know i've, I've got some patients that, that come to me and it's like i've been on iron supplements since i was a child and i'm 35 or 40 or whatever and it's still low <laughs> you know so it's like well you ask them you say well where is it all going where's all the dietary iron you're eating and the supplements you're taking where's it all going you know and you see their faces light up. And when you explain to them that it's a lack of bioavailable copper, because that's required to regulate and help iron recycle itself to prevent it from going in the tissues and stay in the blood. Like I said, it's just like, boom, they start to understand. And, and yeah, it really, it really sort of connects the dots when you understand this with how copper works when it's bioavailable, meaning like bound to its carrier protein, ceruloplasmin. That's one thing a lot of, mainstream practitioners a have never heard of b don't even test for they just give more iron right and it just makes that oxidative burden worse but it turns out that bioavailable copper is so so underappreciated and it's kind of like we've been trained to look at copper as the bad guy and in immune circles and this was definitely me for years and years and years it's like pump zinc pump zinc copper you know you got to get rid of it all and you just got to hammer away at zinc right the worst thing you can do because it undermines copper being bioavailable. And then when that happens, suddenly you can't regulate iron. So you start getting that tissue accumulation of iron, which I was just mentioning. And that's really hard to test for too. These things um, are not super straightforward to, to analyze on bloods, which I think is why it's tricky for practitioners to, to understand and comprehend. And it goes above and beyond just iron and copper too. So we work out that whole food vitamin C versus ascorbic acid has a lot to do in this conversation. So ascorbic acid can separate copper from its carrier protein, which is ceruloplasmin. 
And what do we hear about when it comes to immune health? Everyone needs to thrash vitamin C, right? But it's all ascorbic acid. So yeah, there's, there's some of these untruths and things like that, which I'm really starting to be more vocal about, which I didn't for a long time. And I'm really passionate about it, as you, as you can probably tell. Yeah. But it's really changed the way I've, I've practiced, man. Like as a naturopath, it's what, what my fifth year out of naturopathic school. And it's just this year where I've really, really, you know, doubled down on it. It's changed the way I prescribe. My dispensary is a lot smaller, you know, <laughs> which is a good thing. But I feel like I got to a point where I was like, I'm prescribing so much synthetic, you know, lab made things, which might have a role and some of them are really good, but um, we don't know what we're offsetting and imbalancing. And when we strip it all down and work with whole food complex nutrients, so like take oyster, for example, it's got the zinc, the bioavailable copper, the iodine, the selenium, the omega-3s all packaged together. The body knows innately what to do with them, you know? when you just hammer away at say zinc picolinate or zinc bisglycinate, it's like, it's foreign to the body, you know, but it's what we get trained to do. Right. And it's, it's that whole, you know, green pharmacy changing over to, or I should say, yeah, naturopathy changing over to green pharmacy and that medical influence on our industry. It's good stuff there. And I I love um, even that last bit there, I guess, when it comes to, you know, food sources versus supplementation, critical, critical point there. And there's another vitamin that we sort of haven't really discussed. And not many people talk about this. And this is um, vitamin D. Mm, mm. Do you want to you know, just unleash, <laughs> unleash? Unleash some fury, yeah. <laughs> um, again, same sort of mindset in the sense that this was one that I thrashed myself for years on end, prescribed for a long time, but have had my um, education on it really rocked this, this particular year, um, through the root cause protocol teachings. And it's funny, man, when I really went down this rabbit hole, I worked out how many people in the health space are actually starting to get onto this and talk about this in their own way. Um, which was really impressive because five years ago, I felt like it was just Molly Robbins and the root cause protocol circles that were, you know, bringing it to the forefront. But, Essentially, it's similar to iron. We've been a bit misled when it comes to, um, I'll call it hormone D. It's not a vitamin. It's actually a hormone, as you know, and a very, very powerful, strong hormone at that. And so we're in a time now, especially with what's going on in the world where everyone's you know, talking about immune fortification, which is a good thing, but there's a lot of industry pumping zinc, ascorbic acid, and hormone D. You know, um, and it's a bit concerning because hormone D is just that it's a hormone and we're designed to get it obviously from the sun, convert it by the skin, by the kidneys and the liver. There's a, there's a few main points, which I'll just try and break down for the listeners. So when you take vitamin D or D3, it increases calcium absorption in the gut. We live as humans in a time where we're very deficient in magnesium and we're over calcified, right? So it's like our tissues and our organs are like barnacles in the ocean, very, very stiff. So adding to that, that sort of process is not a good thing long-term, I think, because yeah, you're increasing calcium absorption from the diet when you take hormone D in, 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 in a big way, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is that a lot of people are told that they're they're D3 deficient based on a blood test, which is actually measuring storage forms of hormone D, not the active form, right? So we measure 25 hydroxy D when we get a blood test. And what the body does, because the body's smart, is it will downregulate storage hormone D if active D is too high. No one's looking at active D. This is the problem, Lucas. So 
doctors, naturopaths, you know, to order that test, we can do that, but we're not trained to, right? We're trained to just do, yeah, 25 hydroxy D. So we've got like a, a bit of an epidemic of people being told that they're D deficient when indeed, if we looked at their active levels, they're probably off the chain and their body's down-regulating the storage hormone due to that process. But these people get told that they need to take more and that's where we see issues start to unfold. So another part of it is that you need 10 units of retinol which I talk a lot about to even activate one unit of D this 10 to one ratio, right? So we're pumping D three, right? But we're trashing our stores of retinol in the liver. We're wasting 10 units per one unit of D three. Every time we take D three. Yeah. Something like cod liver oil has that natural balance 10 to one naturally complex. Again, the body knows what to do with that and you need the vitamin A receptor to even activate vitamin D on top of this. So a lot about vitamin D, not enough about retinol, in my opinion. We should be absolutely focusing a lot on vitamin A. And you need magnesium. That's the other point and probably the last point with D. So a lot of people that have low, if they have like low active D and storage D and um, they genuinely are vitamin D deficient, it's like, okay, well, don't stop there. Don't just give them D3. Look at their magnesium because 90% of the time that's going to be deficient. And magnesium is that mineral that we burn up under stress. Yeah. So we, we're a watered down kind of, you know, version of homo sapiens right now in this time, which, which I know you'll agree with our, our soils are completely deficient in a lot of minerals, magnesium being one of them. And we're stressed out to the maximum, you know? So you can safely say that we're all magnesium deficient. Mm. Yeah. But we're piling in the vitamin D. You know, we're, we're giving iron supplements. We're still using ascorbic acid and it's upsetting this kind of network in the body. So it's all the nutrients that we don't really hear about all that much that I'm actually super into right now, like E, K2, right? The fulvic acids, the humic acids and stuff like that. The whole food, vitamin C, iodine, boron. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Sorry, I went up on a bit of a tangent. Uh, I love it. I love it. As you mentioned um, how, you know, the synergy between all those vitamins and then you mentioned vitamin a but i thought if i eat a carrot a day i'm getting my vitamin. <laughs> good man i was hoping you'd bring that up yeah so a carrot a day yeah so we're getting beta carotene when we eat carrots which which you know is fine that's an antioxidant it's the orange pigment in carrots great for the microbiome um but turns out sorry vegetarians and vegans that is not the same as retinol and your body will waste a lot of minerals trying to convert that over to retinol it's not the same thing. And we know from anthropological evidence that our ancestors had truckloads of bioavailable copper, K2, and these sorts of nutrients we're talking about in the diet. Mm. Yeah. When, it comes to, when it comes to omega-3s, Dan, I know um, you've, seen, you've probably seen me talk about the Ray Pete stuff and all that, Dr. Yep. Ray Pete, and then yep. this whole lipofossin. So maybe do you want to explore the links there? Yeah. So this is one, I'll be honest, that I'm still a bit unsettled on myself um, because I know there are camps in, you know, if we, we throw out some names, like you mentioned, Ray Pete, Morley, Robbins, um, Matt Blackburn, where PUFAs and omega-3s are kind of getting thrown under the bus, right? And the concern in a lot of those circles is that they rancidize straight away and that they add to this lipofuscan calcification and fibrosis. Matt Blackburn talks a lot about that in particular, calls it his LCF protocol. 
So this is an area which I'm not super, super staunch on yet because I don't feel like I'm satisfied with the amount of research I've done to come out and then say, hey, don't take omega-3 supplements. I put a lot of people on cod liver oil because of the aforementioned reasons that obviously contains omega-3 fatty acids. EPA, DHA, I think that's something that I can safely say that I'm not you know, a fan of as much. But um, dietary omega-3 fatty acids from things that are naturally complex like fish and whatnot, I still feel like they resonate with me. How do you feel that though about that whilst we're talking about it? Same as you, man. Like I, I mm. personally, I've experimented with like just cutting out omega-3 supplements, right? Uh, eradicating <clears throat> omega-3-based foods. But I honestly, I feel my best if I have like two or three serves of like, let's say salmon, per week or, you know, some high quality seafood, blue grenadier and stuff like that, or oysters. Like, yeah, yeah. You're probably the same, right? Like, yes, totally. And there's, um, there's good microbiome research too on the, the gut barrier protective effects that you get from omega-3 fatty acids. So I'd love to hear a conversation where all these guys get on and debate it. That'd be a really cool conversation. Maybe you can set that up. Yeah. <laughs> Even we've got to get, we've got to get um, yeah, Jason Horolak as well in the mix, all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did um, recently a uh, through the ACNEM. Uh, did you see that? It was like a carnivore versus vegan conversation. There was about eight practitioners. They spoke about that? Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the omega-3 thing, I don't think had a heavy mention, but it was, you know, obviously Jason was very passionate about the, the effect of a more carnivore animal-based diet on the microbiome, which, which I get. I totally dig that. And then, you know, there was the whole controversy about cardiovascular disease from plant-based nutrition versus animal-based nutrition. Um, Dr. Uh, Pran Yoganathan, he was really, really vocal and I, I really dug a lot of the points he raised. But um, yeah, if anyone's out there and is interested, ACNEM, if you go to their website, I believe you can register to watch that. It's really, really cool talk. Mm, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. When it, when it comes to Dan, let's sort of look at, um, I know SIBO and um, dysbiosis often gets used interchangeably with maybe even um, candida and things like that. Did yeah. you maybe to explain that to my listeners, what those terms really mean? Sure thing. So I'll start with SIBO. So SIBO is an acronym for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So obviously refers to too much bacteria in the small bowel. When we talk about dysbiosis, however, we're more referring to the colonic ecosystem. So that's that large intestine where the microbiome is housed. And um, dysbiosis, obviously meaning an imbalance in the bacteria and the organisms that make up those ecosystems. So you can absolutely be someone if you're unfortunate enough to have a dysbiosis in both the small and large intestine. We see that as practitioners, but you may just have SIBO, you know, where that's a small intestinal issue. And typically what we're looking at is folks that say they eat and within half an hour to 45 minutes to an hour, they're experiencing their symptoms such as bloating, belching, pain, abdominal cramping, diarrhea, or constipation. And there's different types of SIBO. There's methanogenic as well as hydrogen dominant. And um, dysbiosis, meaning like colonic ecosystem dysbiosis down further, that's the folks that will have issues, but it won't be as immediate. So it will take, you know, their food, the obvious, you know, eight to 12 to 14 hours or whatever it is to work that way down to the large colon. And those symptoms may be less like the belching and the bloating and the pain and more around the IBS type of presentation, yeah? 
The neat thing is we can test for these. So with SIBO, we're doing a, a breath test. I use a company down your way actually called Stream Diagnostics, who are really good. And they do all three test sugars, which is really important. So fructose, glucose, and lactulose. Yeah, just a quick side note on that. If anyone's hearing this has been told they've got SIBO and they've done a test and it's only been the lactulose only breath test, that's highly debatable. You really want to make sure your practitioner is testing for all three sugars to, to truly assess it. And um, similarly with the colonic ecosystem, we can do stool sampling and PCR. And um, I use a couple of different companies. I do use the GI map, but I predominantly use Microba up in Queensland. I feel like that mode of testing tells us more about the indigenous populations of good flora versus something like GI map, which is more pathogen focused. So it just depends on the presentation in front of you and you know what you're looking to assess. Yeah. What did you discover with some of the... Um... I'd imagine you would have done some of these tests yourself. Yeah. What did you learn, man? Like, what did you, any interesting findings just for yourself? I learned that a lot of the tests I'd done earlier on in my journey, in my 20s, were all culture-based. Um, won't mention any names of any companies, but all of those are highly, highly debatable in terms of the findings that they present. Nowhere uses that form of testing. It's considered archaic now in the microbiome circles. So it's all about the shotgun metagenomics and PCR and 16S. And there's even other types too emerging from the States, which is really exciting. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was the question there, Lucas? The, 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 some of the findings. like The findings. Yeah, yeah. Findings. Yeah. Sure, sure. So with myself, if I think back to, I've probably done over five PCR tests, you know, since that technology has been available on myself. And I think the first sort of couple of rounds, it was just diversity was poor due to the, the microbiome devastation I'd had earlier on. So I worked on that for a while. That's really, really improved. And now it's just, I think, a matter of keeping the good guys happy. That's the Acomantium, Eosinophila, Bifidobacterium, Fecalibacterium, all these butyrate producing organisms. And we do that with prebiotics. So um, this is an area where I'm super passionate about and I work with a lot of patients with, with gut issues, similar stories to mine, in fact, and a lot of Western society, as a lot of listeners will know, have some degree of dysbiosis just you know, due to Western lifestyle. So there's rarely a report that comes back where I look at it and I'm like, oh, well, we can't really do anything with this. That was a waste of money. It's like there's usually at least one, if not more things that, that we can do. Typically, that will mainly involve diet, which I think is a good thing. So we can get a lot done just with diet, with different plants and polyphenols and fibers and whatnot. I don't overdo it though, because I feel like I'm always in two minds with this sort of treatment. We want to feed the microbiome, which is that ecosystem we're, we're talking about, but we also want to feed us. And that's what I feel like the, the animal-based nutrition does a, obviously a better job of that, that feeds us as humans, the host, whereas the plants feed our microbes. Yeah. And you'll hear obviously a lot of the, the whole, oh, but we're more microbes than, than human. It's like, yeah, that's, that's true in terms of cells, but um, feed yourself first, make sure you're, you know, if you're trying to really improve your microbiome, don't do that to the detriment of your, your nutrient profile. So if you're still deficient in retinol, K2, copper and zinc and all these trace minerals and that type of thing, work on that. Don't disregard the microbiome, but don't try and put all your eggs in one basket and nail that microbiome piece without sorting out the former. And I did that, if I'm honest, for a long time. I was really in that mindset of just like, it's all microbiome and kind of neglected those, those other areas. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's good, man. It's good to, 
guinea pig yourself, which I know you would do too as a, as a naturopath and, you know, similar story. It's good to, to try these things and, and do the tests and everything. And it's cool to see it play out in practice as well. Good stuff. And also when it comes to manipulating the microbiome, I know we both love some of our antimicrobial herbs. So let's sort of look into some potent herbal medicine that you've utilized over the years, just in general. When I think of that conversation, the first herb that always jumps out is pomegranate husk. That I feel like is the rock star for microbiome health. I use whole plant tincture. There's definitely powdered forms available that you can get, which are really neat. You can throw into smoothies and whatnot. Um, But the whole plant tincture goes into a lot of my dysbiosis treatments or SIBO treatments because it has that dual effect, Lucas, where it feeds up your beneficial bacteria at the same time as down-regulating the more pathogenic phylum. And yeah, proteobacteria and gram-negative bacteria are really well treated by, by pomegranate husk. But others that I accompany with the, the tincture, you're looking at things like clove, thyme, oregano in terms of the whole plants and not the essential oils, which is important to, to say because a lot of products are just the essential oils, which I'm not a fan of. When you use a whole plant tincture, you get the polyphenols as well. So it's like protecting the microbiome at the same time as you know managing the, the dysbiotic players. Um, but in terms of uh, antimicrobials, I don't, I don't tend to use too much outside of those. I keep it quite simple, yeah. And um, when it comes to diversity and improving the, the commensal guys, that's more where it comes back to um, just diversity in the diet, really, and, and making sure the colors are there, the blacks, the blues, the purples, the oranges, and kind of eating the rainbow. So I'm all for, you know, organ supplements and, you know, people getting on an animal-based diet, but it's kind of like just spruik it with polyphenols. That's the ultimate. I really feel like that is the best combination. Yeah. I'm in the exact same boat as you there, Dan, when it comes to um, like the, the carnivore diet and how we can integrate polyphenols. For me, I look at, I look at all the research on like the flavonoids present in, in blueberries and, and pomegranates and I'm looking at them like, this is anti-cancer, anti-tumor, like it protects the cardiovascular system. Like how can we get rid of these? Like, how can we demonize it? Yeah, yeah. We can't. I think a, a good balance between the a good balance between the two, but then avoiding some of the harsher plants such as, you know, like things like kale and, and yep. things like that as well. What do you think about just while we're on that, the whole concept and idea of them, you know, obviously not being able to defend themselves, but making these plant toxins to, to hurt us, you know, because I know that that comes up a lot in the, the carnivore camps and I'll get a lot of patients that ask me that. I feel like, just give you my two cents quickly, a lot of these foods that are, that are getting that kind of reputation most likely would have been there and available and consumed in a lot of ancient cultures. Um, we obviously didn't have the technology at that time to analyze the phytochemistry of these plants to know that they contain this and that the way we learned that they were beneficial or not was whether we reacted to them, whether they genuinely poisoned us or not. So when I hear like certain camps talk about certain plants, I'm open to it, but I kind of take it with a bit of a grain of salt, but I'd love to hear how you feel about that. My stance here is I look at those harmful toxins. Like let's say for example, Caffeine is an alkaloid, um, but caffeine is in, it's basically a, a very mild stressor. And so the body, it's just like hormesis, right? Like, so we're just right. ingesting a hormetic compound. So it's going to elicit some sort of 
response by the body to adapt to that compound or stressor. So for me, I look at it like, well, yes, there's multiple phytochemicals present in blueberries and blackberries and, and these things can switch on genes that uh, affect the body's resilience and survival. So for me, I sort of look at it like I'm just cult- like cultivating evidence from animal models and then looking at Mediterranean diet research, like right. like sort of integrating all, all things all into one pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I, I often think of that. And I know the blue zone thing is overrated, but I still think of those certain areas. There is obviously something to it. That's what I tell people. It's like, you know, I had a patient last week. It's like, I read this thing and it's like the blue zones are just complete rubbish and it's all bullshit. And it's like, all right, settle down. There's, there's something obviously to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, coming back to your point, these, these things would have definitely been consumed and are consumed still in a lot of, um, ancient cultures that we still kind of have a peek in and window into the old way of life. Like, like when we look at different tribes that are not Westernized, we can get an idea from their diet um, of, of what we would have been eating back in the day. And um, yeah, I do kind of caution when people are getting super freaked out about, you know, different alkaloids and, and plant phytochemicals because of all of that information and it's kind of like um just take it with the grain of salt go with what feels right when you ingest it and and don't shy away from diversity because we grew up in western society with antibiotics and and you know glyphosate and all these things which which hammer away at our, our bacteria anyway so by the time you've worked all this out and you've gotten into the health space and you're interested in microbiome health you've probably got a lot of work to do anyway so don't strip your diet down even further yeah yeah exactly yeah. What about in terms of future future areas of research in regards to the microbiome? What are you excited about like for the future with that sort of research? Yeah, awesome. Good question. Because um, I was just looking last week into Akimantia mucinophila, which I'm sure you know, you know, you've talked a lot about in your circles too. Um, and that is an organism which plays a really important role, but that's coming out as a probiotic. And I believe it is available in certain places not available here in australia unfortunately yet but i think that i mean it still stands to reason that you should try and support the growth of your own like if you have acomantia in your your stool test it's detected it's like cool you've got it feed it up with those red polyphenols and you know it's going to play that protective role which is gut barrier protection blood sugar regulation all of those sorts of things but for folks where it's been wiped out which is pretty common to replace that and to get those effects i think is quite neat Mm, awesome awesome yeah so that that is what i'm kind of excited about the spore-based probiotics thing i am taking more of of a look into now i feel like when it first came out and jason horror like i know agrees with this it's kind of like we're quite hesitant because it was just another thing and with all of that marketing that came with it it's like is it just going to be one of those things where in a couple of years it's going to fizzle down or will it stand the test of time but Jason's right when he says like, just because this comes out and it's good, it doesn't mean that we discount the old probiotics that we have great research on and just everyone should take spore-based probiotics. Um, but I do like what I see based on what I've learned so far and how they work and their survival in the gastric tract. So I'm excited to see how that space evolves. So looking at that, but um, colostrum is always a thing that I'm kind of um, continually impressed by in terms of the research and trying to work out how I can get my hands on 
you know, the, the cleaner sources. Cause I just think that is such a beneficial all around gut healer for people. Like if you're out there and you've, you're listening and you've got immune deficiency issues and leaky gut and you feel weak, get on the colostrum, find a good source, find it, you know, um, wherever you, wherever you need to, but it's just such a, a beneficial thing to take, I think for the gut. For sure. For sure. In regards to the future uses, and I know you're sort of just touching on the acomandia as a form of um, treatment as a probiotic. Yeah. 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 So that, um, that brand is pendulum. And um, I believe they're either in the UK or the States can't recall at the minute, but um, that I think will lead and pave the way for other mobs to kind of follow suit. Our TGA over here has obviously all of its issues. <laughs> I won't go down that rabbit hole, but it just means that, yeah, things are slow over here in, in Australia, but I'm sure eventually we'll, we'll follow suit. But like I said earlier, I think if you've got it, try and feed it rather than take the probiotic. But if you don't have it, it's a good, it's a good way to get the benefits of it. So I'm looking out for that. And yeah, the soil-based organisms and the spore-based ones and things like that we, we chatted about. Um, I came across some neat research recently, which, which I think you'll love on Shilajit and how that interacts with the microbiome, which, was, which I didn't know. And I do a lot of work with folks on um, reducing proteobacteria, which is that gram-negative type of bacteria, releases endotoxin. You know, we've got this epidemic of endotoxemia connected to a whole heap of conditions. So reducing proteobacteria is always on my radar if it's over and above where it should be. And Shilajit, I think it was taken, I might link the study in the show notes for the listeners, but it was taken over 60 days and similar to pomegranate, it reduced that phyla quite significantly whilst feeding up beneficial microbes, which I thought was really cool. Mm. Yeah, it, so. but I think it's the, like the fulvic acids or some of the, even some of the other compounds present. P- quite possibly. I think in this particular study, it was the whole like Shilajit, not just the isolate of, of fulvic. Um, but I'd, I'd say that that's probably doing a, a fair chunk of the work because that isolate fulvic acid and humic acid, as you know, is in a lot of these new gut products that have, that are coming out of the States. So yeah, interesting. pretty interesting. And also something else to bring up, I guess, when it comes to probiotics is to, my stance has always been to, to treat them like drugs really in a sense, because they're, right. they're going to influence they're going to influence the microbiome in a, in a specific way. And then you've got the whole camp of people that say that they don't actually survive and they're just transient. But I guess, um, you know, without a doubt, there are certain probiotics that can help specifically with diarrhea, specifically with constipation. So do you want to sort of elaborate on that? You got it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm always careful to, to push that as well, because I think there's, there's still a lot of people that think that as part of your health package, you just throw a probiotic in there and you tick that box. And it's like, we really need to be starting to think of probiotic strains like we do with certain herbs, you know? And again, this I'll quote Jason Horror, like this is what he has taught me. And that really changed the way that I practice in that sense. So, you know, yes, there is different strains for constipation. There's different strains for post-antibiotic associated depression. There's, um, there's probiotics for diarrhea and SIBO and things like that. Yeah. And what I'm not a fan of is just those massive, you know, mega strain combination products that are still on a lot of the -the over-the-counter options. And yeah, I quite often will just prescribe single strain quite often. Yeah. There's a couple of products where it might have two or three at the most, but I'm definitely not one of those people. It's like, let's just throw a multi-strain probiotic and yeah, see what happens. 
It's interesting because I saw some research on um, lactobacillus acidophilus, like the classic well-known one. Yeah. The um, obesogenic effect. Have you ever seen that? The um, no, no. I've got a YouTube video coming up soon on it, but it's like it's like um, one of the probiotic bacteria species that promotes weight gain in rats. Okay. And often one that we, if you think about the foods that in, that um, look look at the bulking foods, like let's say um, dairy, right? Like right. yogurt and full fat milk, like a very anabolic food, right? Right. On that, really interesting how certain bacteria species can influence it's amazing man like yeah exactly you think about how these strains um which a lot of people a lot of people that are against probiotics will you you know sort of push that meme where it's like oh the probiotic comes in there's thousands of organisms there what what the hell could that little organism do it's like it's not what it's doing on its you know of itself it's how it's influencing the ecosystem to then carry out a certain action and as you know l reuteri dsm that has an anabolic action too, you know? So they have far and wide reaching effects outside of the gut. And in the the probiotic space, I think we'll see in the next year or two in particular, a lot of the mood-based probiotics and those psychobiotics come to the market. Yeah. And also there, that the area that excites me a lot is um, specific probiotics that can like raise melatonin and like, that's, that's a cool field. That's definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting research. By the way, man, if you ever, ever find anything that you think that I'd, um, yeah, be keen to flick it on. <laughs> I definitely will. I, I keep forgetting. I've got like, um, I got WhatsApp groups set up. I got Facebook groups. I'll, I'll have to bring yeah. you. There's so many cool things are, I need to connect with fellow nerds, please. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, yeah. Cause like my, my spare time fun is literally just and I'm sure you're pretty similar. I set up like PubMed notifications. Yeah. Yes. Keywords. Um, I think that's a great thing to do. I've got one with um, BPC 157, which I'm always on, on, on the, out, you know, looking out for. So that's cool when it comes through. Have you come across any research about peptides for the gut above and beyond BPC? The famous one that's like literally no one knows about is that lorazotide acetate. acetate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I... I had it on my website and because um, it was part of Level Ups, you know, the, the yeah. regenerator and it was getting amazing, amazing results with mm. clients. But then I, I bloody got a, an email saying you can't, you cannot, um, from the, the patent holder of Lorazotide, mm. but um, I, I wasn't allowed to, to list it on my site, unfortunately. So I had uh, to take it down. Big brother was watching, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's exciting, man. That one, like me being a celiac and and having probably over forty patients that are also celiac. That's um that's one where I think the bulk of the research has been done in that that particular condition. So yeah, I'll be keen to watch that space evolve. And I know it's very very hard to get your hands on, yeah, in terms of supply. Right now, it's it's really difficult, and I don't see any companies in the states that are making it like oral in the oral form. But it's um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these these compounds excite me a lot, and I'm always on the hunt, as you know. Yeah, uh, and I mean, I'm currently working in the background. Not many people know this, but I am I am in the works with um with Sean Wells. He's uh he's a formulator. We're planning on releasing our own ingredients 
together soon. Not not related to the gut, but more like the nootropics side of things, which is gonna yeah, be- yeah, right on. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, I'll be I'll be looking out when when that comes when that becomes available. Keep me posted. I definitely will. Was there any um Was there any sort of final areas, Dan? You think we sort of missed, or you wanted to to cover at all? I think from from my end, it's just um, if anyone's out there listening, and you know some of these points have piqued your interest, and you particularly with the mineral conundrum that we sort of spoke about earlier, I'd really recommend people if they've been thrashing zinc and iron and ascorbic acid and these these mainstream alternative health things, and they're not getting the results, start to question it. Look down these rabbit holes because I think what you'll find will really help you make sense of it and. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to do a full podcast on that with anyone, anytime, because I'm super passionate about it. But yeah, what I've learned particularly this year with regards to the importance of bioavailable copper for mitochondrial health, that's something I'm going to be you know, becoming more vocal with and I'd invite people to go down that rabbit hole. I think, yeah, and not enough gets said about the role of bioavailable copper and the importance of ceruloplasmin in the dynamic of fatigue and mitochondria. And I just find as a practitioner, it's those themes that are driving majority of conditions is, is poor mitochondria, right? It's like, yes, there's dysbiosis. Yes, there's obesity. There's blood sugar issues. There's, you know, hormonal issues. But at the end of the day, if you have broken mitochondria, you can take supplements to the cows come home. You have to fix, you know, the innate intelligence of the cell to produce ATP. So it's that, that simple. Bioavailable copper is needed at that complex four in, in the mitochondria to do that. And um, yeah, that book, Cure Your Fatigue by Molly Robbins. Check that out if anyone's interested because I learned a heap reading it. Great stuff there, Dan. Great stuff. And for my listeners, if they're wanting to connect with you, Dan, where can they, if they want to sort of work with you one-on-one, um, where can they find you? Yeah, yeah, please do reach out. Um, at the minute, I'm not taking new patients, but we do have a waiting list that I, I kind of drip feed as positions become available. But do reach out to us on Instagram. That's my main sort of source of, of um, platform. So that's at the.functional.naturopath or thefunctionalnaturopath.com and flick us an email. Easy. I'll link those in the show notes. But Dan, great to have you on the show, man. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. That was fun. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.